The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning, everyone. The first thing to say is, uh, well done for being here on a beautiful Saturday morning like this, uh, with this uh, early summer that we seem to be having. There are other things that uh, I'm well aware that you could be doing uh, with as somebody with uh, three children myself, and uh, Saturdays being uh, rarities that are, you know, always clear, I know that you could be elsewhere. So, uh, thank you for coming and being here and to be part of this. They would be uh, nothing if you weren't here. Um, but as Steve has said, I do believe that um, what we'll be talking about today and seeking to understand will be a blessing to you and will enrich your Christian life and your understanding uh, as you seek to live out the faith as a Christian in the increasingly difficult and complex environment of, Western, of the Western world today. And here we are in Canada facing all manner of difficulties and problems. Uh, the Word of God does have the answers. And as we seek to uh, live faithfully and apply God's Word, uh, I remain and have been for many years a Christian with a great deal of hope. It's a lot to seemingly be depressed about uh, when you read the newspapers and are watching the television and hearing what the courts are doing and seeing what's going on in schools and so on, but the gospel gives us reason for great hope. So, the first session this morning is Christianity and morality or Christianity and ethics, and so that's what we're going to begin with. I think... Uh, uh, Steve uh, will be uh, leading our second session. What I want to do is speak for about uh, 45 to 50 minutes and try and leave some questions for a uh, time for questions uh, at the end before our, our coffee break. So Christianity and morality. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read Romans chapter 7, verse 7 through 25. Romans 7, verses 7 through 25. Some people don't think you need a Bible when you do Christian apologetics because it's sort of philosophy, uh, but it's not true. Uh, it's not Christian ninjutsu. I was speaking in California a few years ago, and somebody said to me after my session, they were taking me out for dinner, they said, how long have you been an apologetic? I said, well, <laughs> slight misunderstanding. We, we rest our uh, understanding and defense of the faith upon the Word of God. Romans chapter 7 verses 7 through 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous 
and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. We haven't got uh, the time to fully exegete that passage this morning, but I wanted to read it to set up the context of our discussion of the Christian view of morality. I also want to read just a few verses from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, because it, in a sense, brings an answer to Paul's rhetorical question in Romans 7, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For He finds fault with them when He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and will remember their sins no more." Now, imagine for a moment that you are uh, 
trying to sell your car. This is something I'm actually working on myself at the moment because I want some American muscle before I'm too old. Uh, and uh, imagine you're selling a, uh, your, your family-owned vehicle to a, another young couple who are looking to buy their first car. They come to your property, they look at your vehicle and take it for a little test drive. Um, and you explain to them some of the uh, positives and some of the negatives about the car, some of the defects there may be, some, uh, some things that an inexperienced car owner or a first-time car owner wouldn't really notice. Perhaps uh, there's some gasket wear, there's a bit of oil leaking, perhaps there's a little bit of rust that's not discernible. And so you're showing them some of the problems. You want to sell your car quickly, you want a quick sale, you're trying to move on rapidly to your next family vehicle. But at the same time, you have a sense of responsibility that this young couple who are trying to buy their first car, you should be as honest as you can be about the good things about the car and some of the negative things, even if those negative things might... Uh, lessen their desire to purchase your vehicle. Now, there is a very simple and tame illustration of the sort of ethical and moral uh, challenges that we face every day. In that situation, how much are you really obligated to say about the vehicle? Uh, if you're aware that there's a bit of rust here or a problem there or maybe there's only, you know, 10,000 miles left on a dodgy drivetrain, you know, it's a bought-as-seen, second-hand car market and so on, how much are you really obligated to say? There's an ethical question, a simple one, but one that all of the time we navigate every day these kinds of questions. What we realize is that our lives are ethical. We live in a moral universe, we're moral beings, Paul says this, we serve a righteous and holy God, and there are ethical questions that we have to grapple with every single day. We have to face the challenge of right and wrong, of good and evil, of virtue and vice, so you don't have to be a philosopher to be an ethicist. We're all ethicists every single day of our lives in the decisions we make. Now, in terms of some of the basics of asking these moral and ethical questions, the subject of meta-ethics uh, doesn't ask first, what is ethical? I mean, when uh, most of us ask questions about morality, we just want a very simple answer. Should I or shouldn't I do this, yes or no? Uh, the first question, though, shouldn't be, here's the one illustration, here's another illustration, here's another hypothetical situation. The first question we must ask is, how do we determine what is right and wrong, what is true and false, what is ethical, what is unethical? Now, that used to be uh, a fairly simple question that would elicit a very simple response from Christians. But it's amazing today especially in the younger generation, in those below 40, how it no longer seems to produce 
straightforward and simple answers about how we determine what is ethical. What is the criteria we use, and how do we justify the criteria we use for ethical and moral questions? Uh, You may have come across the term relativism uh, or the term subjectivism. These are just uh, big words that mean fairly simple things. Relativism is the idea that uh, morality and ethics, what is right and wrong, what is ethical and what is not ethical, are really uh, products of our social and cultural and historical context. There is nothing transcultural about them. They are simply determined by the family, the age, the period in which we've grown up, and so they are essentially relative. That's why, let me give you a couple of illustrations of this. In 1968, in this country, abortion and homosexuality were criminal offenses. What year is it now? 2012. So what's that? 50 years? 44 years? Thank you. In 44 years, our social order has said that what was deemed by a former generation not only wrong but criminal is now not only justified, it's praised and held up as actually a new, uh, an ethical model of what should be taught to our children, should be recognized as marriage, should be celebrated as a mark of freedom and independence and liberty for women and so on. So much so to the point that in the uh, Journal of Medical Ethics recently, I was reading, I was, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Montreal speaking to Uh, a conference for doctors and surgeons from all over the country. And I pointed out that a recent article in the Journal of Medical Ethics is now arguing for uh, after-birth abortions. It's another word, it's a euphemism for infanticide. What they're now arguing is that as an extension of our abortion law or view of abortion or lack thereof, uh, parents should be able to Uh, to kill their infant, their child, with no particular, actually the authors don't even argue for a cut-off point, for all the reasons that a woman can abort a child today up to term. So if your child is eight weeks old and you decide, well, you know what, uh, socioeconomically we're not really in the uh, kind of situation we were hoping we were going to be, or looks like the child isn't as healthy as we thought, these ethicists are now arguing that these parents should just be able to dispose of these babies. So that's relativism. That's saying that really there is no objective, absolute standards of morality that transcend time and culture and age, but they are all conditioned by our situation historically. It's relativism. Subjectivism really says that ethical and moral choices are really just down to my tastes. I'll give you a very stark illustration of this that I was uh, told about recently. A, A teacher who showed a picture to his high school class, an ethics class, 
of a girl in a young uh, girl in Afghanistan who had had acid thrown in her face for going to school, and it burned her face away. Her nose was missing, and he put this rather shocking picture up on the PowerPoint in the classroom. And he asked them to talk about and discuss whether, this, whether doing this to somebody was right or wrong. And he found that the students were not really able to answer the question in those terms. They said, I don't like it. I personally wouldn't do that. It, doesn't, it offends our cultural sensibilities. But look, that's their culture. We shouldn't judge. I remember in my philosophy classes as, uh, as, uh, back as a, a younger man than I am now, um, we were uh, posed similar questions about uh, how when the British were in India, uh, a number of things were outlawed, infanticide was outlawed, and the burning of uh, widows with their dead husbands. So the burning of the widow alive with her husband who had passed away which was a common practice in India, was forbidden by law. And we would be asked, were the British right to change this cultural pattern, this cultural norm, and outlaw this practice of sati, this burning of widows? And I remember my philosophy teacher arguing, uh, basically saying, well, what were the British doing in India in the first place? So th th those things are both relativistic and subjectivist. Look, if, if it's people's taste, if it's their custom to uh, their particular cultural sensibility to do these things, then that's up to them. You can't judge. Uh, let me give you one more illustration. They keep coming to mind. Um, I was doing a debate on the existence of God in Coburg. I think it was a couple of years ago now. In fact, I think that debate, we have it with us today, don't we? The Great Debate, is it on DVD? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Um, with a, uh, uh, a humanist, an atheist professor of psychology, psychiatry. And uh, I, I was pushing her on this issue of morality and ethics. And I said, without God, surely uh, what I may deem unethical today, immoral today, may be perfectly ethical and moral tomorrow. I said, how do I know whether it's right to eat my neighbor or love my neighbor? And will it be so what's true today? Will that be true tomorrow? And she got up and quite honestly said, well, it's true. In 50 years, it may be perfectly ethical to cannibalize your neighbor. Because there are no standards which transcend you or I. That's a relativistic or subjectivist approach to ethics that dominates our culture today. So the questions are, what makes an act right as opposed to wrong? There are two primary ways in which this question has been approached historically. And don't worry, I'm not going to bore you with a, uh, a survey, a philosophical survey of Western history on ethics. But I'm just going to give you two, the two primary ways in which people have sought to answer ethical questions. The first is called a consequentialist schools of morality or ethics. That is, you decide what's ethical based on the consequences. You do a kind of mental arithmetic. There are so many problems with this idea that, uh, well, they're obvious to anyone. I mean, 
how do you really know, how can you possibly know that uh, what the consequences of any given action is at any given time? It's simply impossible for us to know those things. How can you add up ethically, for example, with utilitarianism, the greatest good of the greatest number? How could I possibly know what is going to be, whether I buy a Snickers bar or, or a Twix bar, is going to be for the greatest good of the greatest number? Or if I buy a Hyundai over against a Ford? It's just, it's a ridiculous notion, but this is the, one of the ways in which philosophers have tried to deal with the question of ethics. The other school of thought are what's called deontological, don't worry about the term, deontological schools of ethics, which says that things are either right or wrong in themselves. And so, for us as Christians, we do believe that actions are right or wrong, even our motives and our heart's desires are right or wrong based on whether they actually conform to God's law of love. That there is an, there is an absolute and unchanging and invariant standard that guides our understanding of ethics, which is why Christians cannot support abortion. I run into Christians who do, who profess to be Christians. It's why we cannot support redefinitions of marriage. It's why we can't support pre- and extramarital relations, because God's standards are unchanging. And God guarantees that the outcome of our behavior in terms of His Word will result in that which is good. He's the only one who knows everything. He knows all the relationships between all the facts of our experience and all the causes and causalities in the world. He alone is the one who can say, this will work out for your good. What does the Scripture say? In all things, He works for the good of those who love Him. And what's the first commandment? Love God and love your neighbor. So we know that God is working for good when we obey Him. So, the challenge of ethical or virtuous living for the Christian isn't a peripheral concern. It seems to be becoming that way in certain quarters of the church today. But morality and ethics is not a peripheral concern. It's just not one subset or one aspect of Christianity. Well, there's our faith and then, oh, and then there's Christian ethics. Rather, Morality or ethics is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's at the very center of what it means to know God, because faith in Christ involves radical, spiritual, and intellectual and moral transformation by regeneration. The Apostle John actually claims that anyone who says they have faith in Christ but doesn't pattern their life after God's law of liberty deceives themselves and is not a believer at all. That's what he says in 1 John 1. John tells us that actually the mark of, of being those who know God is that we seek to walk in obedience to Him, not in perfection but we are seeking to walk as the direction of our lives in obedience to God in our daily living. There is an inward law that's impressed upon the mind and heart by the Holy Spirit as part of God's common grace to all men and women as well. So that uh, at the very heart of the message of salvation, as 
Paul has really helped us understand there in Romans chapter 7 is the problem of sin. Sin is ethical rebellion against God. Christ comes to, the, to, to, to live a sinless life and to die for sin, for ethical rebellion, and to then transform us so that we now live in terms of the righteousness of Christ. In fact, Paul says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the whole, the very center and heart of the gospel of the Christian faith is actually about morality and ethics. Christ has come to redeem us from the curse of the law because of our sin and to restore us to right standing with God so that we will walk with God in righteousness and holiness in the way that He actually created us. So we're not dealing here with a peripheral concern. We're dealing with the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. And this leads us to the fact that we have to face that there are these absolute moral requirements that God has of all men and women. We are therefore called as Christians to submit to God's Word rather than to challenge it. And God, the Bible tells us that God's revealed to us His standards in, in two ways. First of all, in our consciences. That there is, a, if you read Romans 1 and 2 in particular, tells us that actually all of creation, Psalm 19 to a degree, speaks of the purpose uh, and character and nature of God. And that also in our own consciousness and our own self-awareness, there is, a, there is the common grace of God at work in our lives in such a way that men and women know that they are in ethical rebellion against God. The second way in which God has revealed His requirements to us is through His Word, through His law, and ultimately in and through Jesus Christ. That's the tough news. The tough news is that God... Uh, is absolutely holy, absolutely righteous, absolutely just, and we're sinners. And that's the starting point of the gospel. We're, we're rebels against God, and that leads to ruin. You know, the, the message of Scripture is that all ethical rebellion against God, uh, what does the writer of Proverbs say? I think Proverbs 8, uh, 36. Uh, all those who sin against me wrong their own souls. All those who hate me love death. That when we actually turn from God and away from His light and life, we move in the direction of death and darkness. So that sin and evil and rebellion against God are always destructive. The devil wants to tell us, of course, we're missing out when we obey God, that somehow we're, we're losing out. But Jesus says, I have come that you might have life, and life in its fullness, in all its fullness. So, we're fallen human beings, and fallen human beings suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we often lack a desire to will what is good, let alone lack the ability to do it. Even Paul is talking about his struggling and wrestling with these two natures, these two laws that work within him. The regenerate uh, working of the Holy Spirit in his life that delights and rejoices in the law of God and recognizes its holiness and righteousness and goodness and truth, and yet the old sinful nature that struggles against that. 
I'm sure we can all relate to what Paul says in Romans 7, can't we? And if ever there was a passage that uh, reminds us of our humanity and our fallenness, uh, it's Romans 7. We sometimes lack even the desire to do what is right at times, and we do fail. And the Christian account of a fallen and corrupted human will is the only thing that really makes sense of our reality, and it's, it's, it's something that human philosophy has been completely unable to deal with. When the non-believer looks at the world, looks at the world of ethics, and looks at the world of morality, and looks at the human person, they say, man is essentially good. Nature is good. All that lives is holy. Now, they, by that, they don't understand, of course, the righteousness and holiness of God, but they say if it occurs in nature, it's good, because without God, all you've got is what? Nature. The essential idea of uh, the rationalists in philosophy has been that human beings, really, however you define goodness, they're capable of it, and uh, in fact, their minds really are like a blank slate and all you've got to do is write the correct things on it. That's why we worship edu- our education today, even though it's uh, not uh, what it ought to be. And in fact, our educational standards have declined steadily. Uh, we have this idea that if we can just stick children in some sort of government kindergarten from about two years of age, we can train and work out of them uh, and write onto them and remake them into what we want them to be as political and social animals. And we can correct all their behavior. I don't want to digress too far here, but um, even in our understanding of penology, of punishment, this was the idea that dominated the 19th century. We developed this thing called the penitentiary. That word penitentiary, you think about the beginning of that word, is penitent. And the idea was to design a, uh, a, ha- a, a place of discipline or correction that would be like a monastery where somebody is put in a small cell like a monk would live in, a small room with very limited facilities. And there they could uh, have all the evil environment around them blocked out, focus on their wrongdoing, and then be remade by the state and its discipline. Well, if you look at our culture today, it hasn't worked, has it? Hasn't worked. The issue of, uh, well, maybe we'll do some Q&A about penology. You know, in the 1950s in Canada, you could still be executed for rape. Chances are you won't even go to prison now. Never mind, let's move on from that before I digress too far. But this idea that human beings are essentially good and can be changed and altered uh, because the problem is their environment. So the idea is that there is no sin in us that perverts our nature and causes us to do evil and go off the rails ethically and morally. The idea is that we're essentially good and that the problem is in the environment. Of course, the bad environment today, we're told in our culture, is churches, the family, the clergy, capitalism, colonialism, 
and every other evil that has been brought upon the world apparently by Christendom, which is another dirty word. And if we can stamp out that evil environment, we can remake human beings, create a kind of modern utopia. This is what the intellectual elite actually believe. They tell students in the universities in Toronto that there are seven genders and that there will be a new neo-Marxist revolution that will bring about a, a new world order. This is what they're still teaching. In fact, one of my students told me recently that in one of her first classes, uh, she was told that um, at York University that uh, they tried lying under buses during the 60s. It didn't really work. So they all went into the, they all took uh, PhDs and went into the academy because they realized you, you have to capture the minds of the young to alter the course of the future. Our hearts and minds then, according to the Christian worldview, are actually not the same from one moment to the next. We're forgetful, we're inconsistent, we're wavering, we're changeable. And that if morality and ethics are defined by our feelings, well, then they will be changing constantly. But instead, the Bible teaches us that God, in His own character and nature, in His own revealed will, and ultimately in the person of His Son, has defined for us what ethics, what true morality actually looks like. We reject the ideas of absolute freedom, absolute autonomy, independence, neutrality, and so on and so forth that says man is really independent of God and he's the victim of certain external causalities, so he's not really guilty for what he does. I was reading in the paper just the other day that this chap in, I think it was out west, who cut the head off of somebody traveling next to him on the bus. Well, he's not really guilty because he wasn't in a right state of mind or frame of mind when he did it. The idea is that really the fact is that we are not truly responsible for our actions. Not truly responsible for what we do. That somehow it's external things that have changed us. So the philosophy becomes change what's out there and you'll change the person. The gospel says, Christianity says, no. True morality and ethics begins when Christ transforms us by regeneration. The person regenerates us so that we then begin to live differently. Yesterday I was on Sun Television, Sun TV, on the arena uh, to discuss uh, an American athlete who uh, a, a lady called Lolo, I think her name is, if memory serves. Uh, the Olympics is bearing down on us soon, the Olympic Games. And uh, she had recently made a public statement in America about the fact that she, even though she was, I think, 32 years old now, uh, was still a virgin and was preserving herself uh, for marriage as a gift to her partner, as a gift to her husband. And this was just all over the news. How ridiculous. This is unbelievable. And particularly because of the fact they were juxtaposing that with the fact that uh, she'd had a few pictures taken of her that were a little bit on the racy side, and they were asking whether this was a, a contradiction. But what I did is I pointed out the fact that in 1960 in America, in 1960, 2.3%, 2.3% of white children were born outside of wedlock. Today, it's nearly 
In the black community in 1960, 23% were born outside of marriage. Today, it's 72%. One in four girls, teenage girls in America, has been infected with a sexually transmitted disease. Now, you think about that shift in ethics in the, in the space of 50 years. 50 years. And there are very real consequences to that. There are now, I know there's some very young people in the audience, so I'm going to not be too specific, but there are certain uh, diseases that have been transmitted now that are incurable. They're superbugs. There are so many strains, they cannot be treated. Sin always has consequences, not just a cultural issue where we can say, oh, well, you know, never mind. We've changed our minds on that now. We've shifted our opinions on that. These things have a real consequence. So, God sets the standard. The next problem is, though, how do we understand the Bible in the light of moral and ethical questions? How do we use Scripture and understand Scripture in the light of ethical questions? As I say, it's very common now increasingly, in, certainly in my generation and below, that's those who are under 40, to actually not think that Christians really primarily even look to the Bible for ethical guidance. America is allegedly full of evangelicals, and yet it's 60% now say that um, premarital relations are perfectly acceptable. There's nothing wrong with it. So how do we use Scripture? The Bible plays a central role in the foundation for ethics because it works like a mirror for us. The, one of the wonderful things about the Christian faith is it doesn't just leave you with abstractions. An abstraction is an idea that, is never, that has no concrete application, that isn't specific. So it doesn't just say, God is absolute, God is moral, God's character defines ethics, go and work it out. I mean, what is God's character? How, what has He said? I mean, that is why God gives us His Word. Conscience, we said, is one avenue, but conscience is not enough. Because what Paul tells us is that men and women suppress the truth that's known in them because of sin. And our consciences can become seared and unresponsive to what God is trying to tell us through them. So God has always spoken specifically in terms of special revelation as well to direct our understanding and our thinking. There was no time actually in the history of humanity when men and women were left to interpret life and reality and ethics by nature. God spoke even with our first parents in the garden of God directly. We're not just left with nature. God has spoken and revealed Himself. And so, Scripture plays a central role in our understanding of ethics and morality. It tells us what love for God and man actually looks like. And it tells us that we're not just to reflect on what is moral and virtuous. You know, the philosophers, the ancient philosophers in particular, love to reflect and meditate on the true, the good, and the beautiful. They just didn't take much time to do it. And the Bible is concerned not just with abstract reflection on what is true, good, and beautiful. It's concerned with us living it out. 
Because it isn't really morality in true Christian ethics unless it's lived, unless it's put into practice. So what God does in Scripture is tell us what we should have been able to see by the light of our consciences, but are unable to do because of sin. And for the Christian, God, as we've read in Hebrews 8, takes His law, and He then writes it on our hearts as our desire and our delight, so that our very nature is reoriented towards a love for God and His righteousness and His holiness. So, the law has uh, a number of functions. Let's just talk about God's law for a moment in terms of biblical interpretation. There are two errors which we can move towards as we look at Scripture and ask, how do we apply the Bible to our lives as Christians? The first extreme is antinomianism. There's another big word for you. You have to have your false teeth in before you try and say it. Antinomianism simply means to be anti-law, to be antinomos, to be anti the law of God. This is a very, very common heresy today in the church, where people believe that, well, you don't have, it's just you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, whatever you feel about something, that's good, just do that, you know. Uh, the number of young people who've come to me and said, you know, I just really feel the Lord was allowing my boyfriend and I to sleep together. Really? You really felt the Lord show you that, did you? Well, God doesn't lead us in terms of our feelings. He's actually said certain things. And so, I, it may, like, may seem like to some of you I'm saying things that are very, very obvious this morning, but unfortunately, these things are no longer as obvious as they once were, that actually God has set the standard, and He's written this by His Holy Spirit, and He doesn't contradict Himself. He's not going to tell you something different to what He told the Apostle Paul. I'm sorry about that, but He's just not. Antinomianism then rejects the relevance of God's standards, of God's law, and legalism, which is the other extreme, focuses actually attention on superficial things while ignoring the motivations of the heart and the true application of God's Word to our lives and our families and our communities. Let me give you an example of this. <clears throat> North America was very caught up with temperance, temperance. This idea that, uh, you know, <clears throat> alcohol can be abused, therefore we'll ban it. Well, you know, you can run people over with cars, but we still drive. Cars is a, a car is a lethal weapon, but we still drive. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things that was, became emphasized within evangelical movements was an absolute ban on alcohol are seen as an, an in, intrinsic evil. Interesting that uh, so many of the saints of the Old Testament were vine dressers, including Noah, and that uh, <clears throat> the early church were most certainly drinking alcoholic wine because they were getting drunk during communion, and Paul had to tell them to stop over-drinking during the communion service. Can you imagine that, going forward for communion and sort of glugging the whole thing back? Of course, it wasn't quite like that because they were having fellowship meals, and we have to, it wasn't just a little, you know, oh, I've got my... You know, that wasn't quite the way they, that wasn't the way they did it. Uh, but the, or, uh, so, so actually a generation of parents didn't really teach their children how to 
uh, appreciate and respect that which is good and use it in moderation. Paul writes Timothy a prescription for drinking wine because we now know of so many medical benefits uh, that Paul, I'm sure, didn't fully appreciate, like reduction of heart disease in men by about 40% if you have a glass of wine a day. Now, I'm not promoting the drinking of alcohol. You, you have to, it's, this, that's a conscience issue, okay? So if you feel that it's too much of a, uh, an issue for you or for those around you or the weaker brother, that's, what, that's the liberty that we have in Christ. Free to enjoy a glass of wine or a glass of beer, free not to enjoy it. It's fine. Temperance said, legalism says, thou shalt not drink because I don't. Or hair length, for example, another issue. Now, do I think uh, it's a good idea for men to wander around with ponytails? No, I don't. But in the end, is that the core issue of the Christian faith? So, uh, what legalisms do... Uh, is get hung up on things that actually the Bible doesn't specifically legislate about. Maybe you enjoy the odd cigar and don't tell anyone. Does the Bible say anything specific about uh, smoking a pipe or a cigar? Actually, it doesn't. In fact, some of the most uh, famous, I could shock you by some of the famous saints who smoked. C.S. Lewis, for example. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. Charles Spurgeon, <gasps> the Baptist. Uh, again, am I encouraging smoking? Do I smoke? No. Have the odd cigar at Christmas. But those things in and of themselves, we are free to enjoy or not to enjoy depending on our conscience. What about certain foods and so on? Paul says, don't judge one another in these things. So we can get hung up on legalism rather than being concerned with what God is actually concerned with. So we get hung up on externals rather than the core issues. So you have those two extremes. You have antinomianism, which says, and the Pharisees, by the way, were actually uh, antinomians. A lot of people think that Jesus attacked the Pharisees because they loved the law too much. No, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He says, you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. You make, he says, the word of God, God's law, null and void by your tradition. They'd added all these legalistic traditions actually made them antinomian in their attitude. They put fences around the law. So instead of understanding the Sabbath as God meant it to be understood and as Jesus interpreted it, they said, well, you don't heal that guy on the Sabbath. That's wrong. We don't like that. What are you doing carrying your mat, your bed? You've been healed. You shouldn't walk more than X number of steps on the Sabbath day. That's work. So you see how people misunderstood and misused the law of God. But it's common to hear people today say, Christians say, oh, I don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. Not all ten of them, surely. In fact, most Christians don't even know the Ten Commandments. I'm not going to do a test here, but... I'd be very interested to do a straw poll and not go around the room and see if we could get all ten by, you know, by vote, whether actually we could name te all ten commandments one to ten. There's only ten. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, uh, we will either live by the ten commandments or we live by the ten thousand commandments. 
And because we no longer live by the Ten Commandments, we've got 10,000 bureaucratic regulations that don't resemble holiness or righteousness at all. There's only 10. Learn them. Teach them to your children. That's God's directions for us. How do we know what love and kindness actually look like? Some Christians say, yeah, but Joe, you just need to love people. You don't need to worry about the law of God. Love people. So what is love then? Paul says, love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus summarized the commandments. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. What is loving to your neighbor? He said, that's the summary of all the law and the prophets. How do you know what coveting is, says Paul in in, uh, Romans 7, unless God's law tells us what it is? You see, we know from the commandment about coveting that God's law was concerned about the heart. It's not just what you do outwardly, it's what you're thinking inwardly. You see, we can't ignore God's plumb line. The psalmist says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, James tells us we're all lawbreakers, and if we've broken it in a single part, we've broken all of it. We're all sinners. We've broken God's law. We know that. The issue now, though, is that having been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, we're being renewed to obedience. It tells us, the Word of God tells us, that God's law and character doesn't change. Jesus says, I've not come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to put it into force. I've come to make it a reality, to show you what it really means. It is the thing we're called to obey so that we grow in sanctification, and there is great blessing in obedience. Paul tells us that faith, our faith in Christ, doesn't diminish God's commandments. It establishes them in Romans 3.31. If you're already there in Romans, let's turn to that. Romans 3, verse 31, St. Paul says, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? On the contrary, we uphold the law. Well, there it is. Does our faith now diminish or overthrow the law of God? He says, on the contrary, it is upheld now by our faith. It's truly established. The guiding principle then, as we come to the Word of God, I'm just trying to give you some summary thoughts there, is that we need to assume continuity in the Bible unless discontinuity is specifically indicated. Many Christians have really reversed that and says, well, unless something is repeated in the New Testament, because I'm a red-letter-only Christian, uh, and there are whole movements. There's a movement now called red-letter Christianity. Now, this is Marcionism. Marcion was an early church heretic condemned by the church because he says a different God wrote the Old Testament. And he said part of what Jesus said here has been Judaized, so we'll ignore that. And some of these letters of Paul, we don't like those either. They're a bit Judaized, so we'll get rid of that. And the true God is this love, light, and spirituality. This heresy has returned uh, to the church. Faith in Christ establishes uh, the law. It doesn't diminish it. There is a continuity, we assume, not a discontinuity between God's Word unless it 
is specifically indicated. Let me illustrate that for you very quickly. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is on a rooftop, and he has a vision. Do you remember this? Before he goes into the house of Cornelius? There are dietary laws in the Old Testament, laws about what we should and shouldn't eat. Now, Peter has walked with Jesus for three years. This is after the death of Christ. It's after the resurrection of Christ. It's after the ascension of Christ. It's after Pentecost. It's after Peter's been out there evangelizing, and he's on a roof praying, and he has a vision, and a sheet comes down out of heaven in his vision, and he sees all of these unclean animals, and he hears God say to him, kill and eat. And what does Peter say? Lord, I've been eating those for several years now. Lord, I've been, I, I had lobster this morning. What do you mean? No, he says, no, Lord. I have never eaten anything unclean. And God says, don't call unclean what I have cleansed. Jesus says, well, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of it. Now, I'm not saying that there is nothing of value in the dietary laws. That I, I, they, were, they were a mark of separation, uh, but there were also health reasons why some of those foods were prohibited, and that's still good counsel, even though it doesn't bind us ethically, okay? So we don't just dismiss that and say, well, there's nothing of value in that. But in terms of it being now a mark of separation, Peter was being taught, there was a knock at the door, a messenger's there, it says, come to this Gentile's house and tell him the way of salvation. And Peter would not have done that. He wouldn't have entered a Gentile's home and become ceremonially unclean unless God had showed him that those laws of separation were done with. But the point is that what is Peter's assumption? Is he assuming discontinuity? Is he assuming that now that Jesus has come, there's no relevance to God's law anymore? No, he's assuming the opposite. Same is true of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. You see that their concern is to, the whole controversy there in Galatians is about whether you can even be admitted to the church without circumcision. And the Gentiles were very relieved that you could be. <laughs> uh, we now, of course, understand circumcision was the mark of the covenant in the Old Testament. We now understand, of course, there are certain health benefits to circumcision. It's still widely practiced. So again, there may be good medical reasons for the practice, but we don't do it now as an, as an issue of the mark of the covenant. We baptize people. The point is, is that we do not just dismiss the Word of God and say, well, it's not relevant to me because it's just me and Jesus now. Protestant principle of me, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit doing what we like. No, we're tied. The Holy Spirit is always tied to His Word, and we must rightly interpret it. I've said enough about that. The point is the book of Hebrews shows us that the priesthood, the temple, Christ is now the, the living temple. He's taken us into the temple. We are the body of Christ. He is the Lamb of God. So the temple system and the sacrificial system we also know has been set aside. The apostles, interestingly enough, didn't go into the, uh, they did go into the synagogues and temples for worship, but they weren't carrying their sacrifices in. Christ is now the sacrifice. They understood that. So, in sum, Augustine tries to summarize what it means to live as a Christian, a summary of the law of the prophets. He, he quotes uh, 
Matthew, Matthew 22, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the other commandments and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So Augustine says that true ethics, true morality for a Christian is the right order of love. It is about love. What is love? Love, Paul says, does no wrong to its neighbor. Love is the fulfillment of the law. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to murder him. I'm not going to steal his property. I'm not going to run off with his wife. I'm going to honor God's day. I'm not going to covet, and so on and so forth. That's what loving my neighbor really looks like. Love is the right ordering. It's a hierarchy of will and desire. It's love for God and love for others as God would direct us. Augustine writes, this is helpful, he says, just as the covetous man subordinates justice to his love of gold through no fault in the gold but in himself, so it is with all things. They are good in themselves and capable of being loved either well or badly. They are loved well when the right order is kept, badly when this order is upset. Hence, it seems to me that the briefest and truest definition of virtue is that it is an order of love. What we love determines what we will and how we will live. You know, uh, if, you, if you love a soccer star or a hockey star when you're a youngster, you tend to start looking like them. You know, you want to dress like them. You want to get the same shirt. You want to do the same hairstyle. I remember I went through a bit of an Elvis phase when I was uh, a teenager, and I had like eight posters of Elvis around my room and about 30 of his albums, and I subscribed to a journal called Elvisly Yours. I had an Elvis medallion. I was trying to comb my hair like Elvis. It was ridiculous. It didn't last too long. But when you love something, you start to conform yourself to it. How many of you men know that when you're romancing your uh, bride-to-be, uh, you start trying to conform yourself to things that you know she will appreciate, and vice versa. You know, it's then harder to do that once you're married 10 years and beyond, right? But that's what we do in the wooing process, right? Because we conform ourselves in terms of what we love. If we love God, we're going to conform ourselves to His will. That's what uh, Augustine was saying. And we can't work up this love for God artificially. It is a work of the Holy Spirit that as we spend time in God's Word, as we seek to serve Him, as we search, uh, seek to uh, ask God to do this work in our lives, He gives us through, at times even though it's a battle when we actually form the habits of doing what is right, what is true, and speaking to ourselves rather than listening to ourselves, God's Word, and we start to walk in it and practice it, it does become our de delight and our desire, and God conforms our wills to His. And so, the, all of the Christian life becomes holy desire. True Christian ethics is holy desire, but not in the abstract sense. It's something that is applied directly to our lives. Now, I could say a lot more, but I was going to talk about uh, various things, pantheism and so on and so forth, but I want to just leave a couple of minutes here for questions. I was going to talk about social and political and sexual ethics. No time for that. But are there any questions? That's an introduction to 
Christian ethics, Christian morality. Um, if you've got a question, just stick your hand up and ask it. Yes, sir. Uh, there may be, uh, there may be a, a philosophical distinction. Um, if we are going to define ethics as being something that is generated out of moral principles. So, um, morality, uh, the problem is, is the way we use the terms, uh, morals, uh, values, you know, our culture now talks about values rather than virtues. And that is ethics in the sense that uh, what people are saying there is that ethics are not something which are discerned or derived from, ethical principles are not derived from uh, overall moral principles that are transcultural. They're just values that emerge either subjectively or relativistically. So, I don't really think there is a meaningful difference between morality and ethics. We could say that, um, uh, we might like to say that moral law gives to us then uh, ethical principles. We discern from moral or ethical principles. The Bible, for example, does not speak to every single ethical dilemma that you might face directly. So I read nothing about how to sell my second-hand car to a non-Christian um, in the Bible. But the moral laws, the morality that is revealed in the Bible gives me principles upon which I can ethically make a godly determination about what I should say about my car. So, uh, I don't think substantively there is any difference unless we take a non-Christian view of the issue. So, ethical principles can be derived from God's moral laws, so morality and ethics are inextricably related and intertwined. If you're not a Christian, well then ethics or values are, are really just being created socio-culturally and are generated subjectively or by some moral arithmetic rather than from the moral principles of God's Word. So I'm not sure I can give you, I mean Steve might be able to give you a better um, uh, delineation, delineation than that, but that is the way, I, I don't think there is a meaningful uh, distinction between the two of them that has value for the discussion. Well, I agree with you. I, I do think that, um, I don't know whether any of you saw that really controversial speech of Dan Savage. Did anybody see that? Do you see that? To, those, uh, to the journalist, stu uh, students of journalism at a conference um, in which he savagely attacked the Bible. But one of the areas, one of the things that uh, where one, uh, despite the fact that I don't believe any of his motivations were in any sense motivated by anything positive or godly, he's just a God-hater, he did point out something that many Christians overlook, or at least tend to overlook, which is there is a pick-and-mix approach and uh, these seminarians that you're talking about, they take a hermeneutic that says, well, we used to believe this about slavery, we used to believe this about women, and we used to believe this, and now so we're just, same with homosexuality, we're just changing it. And it usually rests on a total misunderstanding of what the Bible says about slavery, a total misunderstanding of what the Bible says about women, and then a total misunderstanding of what the Bible says about homosexuality. The idea that homosexuality is some kind of new, novel, social... It's just absurd. The, the Greco-Roman world was a homoerotic culture. 
It was rife. A, a, a rite of passage for a young man in ancient Greece was a homosexual relationship. It was typical, especially amongst the aristocracy. And so Paul uses all the words available in Greek to deal with that particular subject. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, same with uh, the, the misunderstandings about slavery. The Bible nowhere condones man theft and enslavement. In fact, man theft and enslavement in biblical law require the death penalty. What you have in the Bible is indentured servitude or indentured workers who are working off debts or who are criminals working off debts or in some cases people working uh, because of war and captivity. You do not have what was practiced by by essentially humanistic states in Europe. Slavery had disappeared by the 14th century in Europe because of Christianity. It was reintroduced by humanism and then it was of course, used in America. That's what people think about when they think about slavery. They think about the American South. Uh, I don't want to get into a historical discussion about that. But then they take this, this hermeneutic. This is, oh, we changed our minds about this. We changed our minds about women. Now, the, the issue of hats, that's a high, that was always been controversial about whether a woman should wear a hat. I don't think that is a... Uh, I would hermeneutically look at that passage in that text and Paul's talking about customs. There was issue of a head covering was a symbol of marriage. It was like a ring, right? And there was the issue of prostitutes having their heads uncovered. So there were, there were at work there customs that Paul specifically addresses and says that they are customs. Um, but this pick-and-mix approach to the Bible which says, well, we like this now, we don't like this. You're right. All that that's doing is saying the culture will now define our ethical beliefs. The culture will now define morality for us. So the so-called emergent church movement says, well, we're just having a moratorium on homosexuality. That was a few years ago. And now they're writing books which says, like The Justice Project, where Tony Campolo's wife, and Tony Campolo endorses the book, is saying that, the, that gay rights and homosexual unions and marriages are a justice issue, that we are practicing injustice unless we support it. And these are supposedly evangelicals. So you're, you're absolutely bang on. This area is so critical, it's so core, because uh, we have played fast and loose with the Bible. We've said we will just pick and mix and we'll decide what we want, what actually fits with our cultural sensibilities. And that means that actually it's not the Bible, but it's culture that's defining what is moral for us. It's culture that is now defining what is ethical for us. So we need to, do, we need to go back to previous generations who looked, you know, C.S. Lewis once said, to avoid the blindness of our age, we have to read old books. We've got cultural blindnesses. They had blindnesses that we see now in hindsight. We've got blindnesses that they didn't have. And we need to go back to what the reformers, what earlier evangelicals, what the Puritans had to say about these things to actually understand where our blindnesses are. It's all there in the Christian tradition, how we should approach this issue these issues. We don't want to do it because we fear offending people, and we fear that they're going to reject us because uh, we don't, we're not accepting of their practices. But I've showed you today, I, I've just given you, in 60 years, how do you go from a penal system that executes rapists and murderers and has homosexuality and abortion as criminal offenses to seven to ten years for a murderer if you get convicted. You know, there was a, a Bill Gardner in his book, The Trouble with Canada Still, 
takes five, I think it was uh, 500 uh, dangerous criminals who were in prison for violent crimes who were supposedly treated and released into the general population after 30 years. Those 500 people between them committed over 500 homicides in the next 30 years. And so these ideas that uh, in 60 years these things have changed. You don't even, you don't, well, I'm, I'm not talking about going back to 250 years. I'm talking about going back just to the Second World War which was one of the turning points uh, in terms of our, uh, most legal scholars would agree that the Second World War in particular was the turning point in the West of our move away from biblical standards and biblical law to humanistic ethics. I would, I would, if you're a real scholar, go and read Harold J. Berman's two-volume work, Law and Revolution, the Harvard legal scholar, and he talks about this extensively. So you're, I'm saying you're right, and I agree, and we have to do some serious thinking about this. Just one more. Two more, and I'll do them really quick. This man at the back here. Sorry, we'll come back to you. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why I talked about the term at the beginning, meta-ethics. Meta-ethics is not simply asking, which is, where, which is where the morality and ethics issue comes in, is not simply asking what is ethical. It's asking how do we define what is ethical. That's the morality piece. So we can talk about meta-ethics, and we can talk about ethics. Ethics, you're right, what is happening well, how ought we to live is the meta-ethical question, which we might call the moral question. Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is, uh, is, is murdering 400,000 babies a year barbaric? I mean, when we, we, we are a culture of hypocrites. We drop nuclear bombs on Japan and call that good war uh, and, you know, destroy two cities, raise them to the ground, Hiroshima and Nagasaki back in the 40s, and we kill uh, innocent babies, and we uh, practice euthanasia, and we want to practice infanticide, and we want to give people permission to switch themselves off at suicide clinics, and then we have the audacity to look back at the Bible and call it barbaric, but it's usually done with a lack of understanding. Part, the first problem is that there's too many people in the church who think the atonement is barbaric. All right, now, this is what, again, I'm sorry to refer to this again, but the emergent church have basically said that the cross is cosmic child abuse, right? And that, you know, the sacrificial atonement of Christ is, you know, a twisted version of events and is just barbarism. <laughs> well, if, Christ, if the Christian church says the cross is barbarity, what's the, what's the world going to say? Um, the the so-called atheistic states of the 20th century who proclaimed their great morality butchered millions of people. And uh, we are, there's no question that we are uh, increasingly with our censure, with our restrictions on freedoms of speech and expression, we are moving in the same direction back towards the gulag. People like Christopher Hitchens, I think it was, or was it Sam Harris? I think it was Sam Harris in his book. Um, uh, Steve, what was the name of it? Doesn't matter. Um, it'll come back to me. Sam Harris in his book said that some people, he said, should be killed for what they believe. He says some beliefs are so dangerous that it may be justifiable, he says, to kill people for those beliefs. That's what humanism says. 
That's what the new atheism says. That is the direction our culture is moving back. This, this happened throughout the 20th century. We're blind if we don't see this. So um, Christ's uh, sacrifice for sin, no, there's no barbarity there because G- the Bible says that Christ offered himself. Right? He was executed, yes, by the Romans, and in the ancient world, uh, they used the technologies of the day. You know, we've used our own technologies to execute people. They used, and they, of course, crucifixion was meant, was designed to extend pain. It was reserved for non-Roman citizens. It was a peculiarly cruel form of execution, no question. But the atonement is not an act of barbarity or cruelty. Um, and uh, we do need to be able to understand and assess when we look at Old Testament stories the difference between what God is endorsing and what is simply being recorded in the Bible. So there's a very big difference between what is just a, a, a recounting of a historical event and what God has endorsed. There's a difference between a standing moral commandment, like you shall not murder, and God's use of the children of Israel to bring judgment on the Canaanitic peoples, who the Bible says were practicing such vile, in Leviticus 18, were such vile practices that God spewed them out of the land. And uh, when it says as well that a town was destroyed or whatever, you have to remember that these aren't cities in the way that we have mega cities today. It says such and such a city was destroyed. Uh, these were, it doesn't lessen the fact that people were killed, but we think of cities in terms of modern cities. These were not modern cities. These would have been what we would call a, a village, a large village or a small town when these peoples were ejected from the promised land. And that was God's temporal judgment, and God has the right to do that. There are no standing laws which require Christians or the church to do that. Those were temporary requirements that God had laid upon Israel to execute his judgment on a people in the same way that he flooded the earth. And uh, they point us forward to the final judgment. So you're right, we are at a distance from those cultures, and some things look to us uh, if we don't understand the cultural context, barbaric. And that's why actually we need scholarship. We need careful biblical scholarship to ensure that we are rightly reading and understanding what is actually going on in the Old Testament. And we need to read it with great care. There, the, the Bible actually says that uh, the laws of God given to, to Israel were so righteous that they were to be a model that all the other nations would look at Israel and say, nobody has righteous laws like their laws. Nobody has a God like their God. And that was their mission, to be a light to the nations. They failed, and that task was given to the church. We are now to be a light to the nations. So, um, the, my, my, the, the, the twofold answer is simply that, one, let's look at our own sin, first of all. Uh, we have not made moral progress when you look at history. We're all sinners, and we're still sinners in the modern age, and we just use our modern technology to do what they used old technology to do because of sin. And then we have to discern the difference between what is God's temporal judgments and what is God's standing commandments. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.